Now we are uh, actually finishing up Ephesians chapter 4 this morning. We're looking at verses 30 through 32, the last three verses in Ephesians chapter 4. The title of the sermon today is From Grief to Glory. And as we finish up the book of Ephesians, it's good for us to recall and remember that Paul has covered a lot of ground in chapter 4. We spent several weeks talking about our new identity in Christ, what God through Jesus has done in us through our faith in responding to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We spent several weeks talking about at the very beginning of chapter 4 about what God has done to bring us together, unifying us into the kingdom family of God as brothers and sisters, as children of God coming together as the family of God. And today Paul summarizes all of this and he exhorts us to yield to the Spirit of God. And so I'll be reading and teaching primarily from the New American Standard Bible. Let's read our text today, Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 30. The Apostle Paul writing to the church, the Christians in Ephesus. He says, do not... Bring sorrow to God's Holy Spirit by the way that you live. Remember, he has identified you as his own, guaranteeing that you will be saved in the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, harsh words, and slander, as well as all types of evil behavior. Instead, be kind to each other, tenderhearted, forgiving one another just as God, through Christ, has forgiven you. Church, this is the word of God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather in your presence, God. You are worthy of our praise and worthy of our lives. And so as we open your word, God, we ask you to teach us and instruct us by the power of your spirit, that your word would go down into us in effect and change and mature us as we grow and adorn in Jesus we would grow in our new identity. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I spoke and used the uh, Battle of Gettysburg a couple of weeks ago uh, as, as an analogy and picking up on that. Uh, at the end of the Battle of Gettysburg, General George Gordon Meade, who was the Union general, the general over all Union troops, northern troops, brought tremendous grief upon upon Abraham Lincoln at the very conclusion of the Battle of Gettysburg. Remember, this is July 1st through 3rd of 1863. The battle was fought outside of a little town called Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. And in defeat, General Lee, right of the South, uh, fled south, of course, went down into Maryland, and he was trying to get over the Potomac River. That was the dividing line between the north and the south. But there had been a lot of rain, and there was flooding, and he couldn't get over the Potomac River. And so the entire southern army, on the heels of this massive defeat, camps along the river near Williamsport, Maryland, for nine days, and he is not pursued by General Meade and the northern army. Uh, As you can imagine, President Lincoln is very deeply grieved that Meade allowed this to happen, rather than to just finish the rebel army off in the summer of 1863. As you probably remember, the war would go on for another two bloody long years. And so some people turn to uh, alcohol or they punch walls when they're frustrated and grieved at other people. President Lincoln uh, had a different tact. He would write letters. And in this case, he wrote this very pointed letter that he never sent. I don't believe he intended to send it to General Meade. He just needed to 
vent, and here is what he said. Here's a part of that letter. He said that you've fought and beat the enemy at Gettysburg, and of course, to say the least, his loss was as great as yours, for he retreated, and you did not pressingly pursue him. But a flood in the river detained him, till by slow degrees you were again upon him. You had at least 20,000 veteran troops with you, many more raw ones supporting at supporting distance, all in addition to those who had fought with you at Gettysburg. Well, it wasn't even possible that he had received a single recruit. And yet you stood and let the flood run down, bridges be built, and the enemy move away at his leisure without attacking him. Again, my dear general, I don't believe that you appreciate the magnitude of the misfortune involved in Lee's escape. He was within your easy grasp, and to have closed upon him would, in connection with our other late successes, have ended the war. As it is, the war will be prolonged indefinitely, almost a prophetic word for it was two more years. Lincoln's grief over the fact that a victorious, well-supplied, well-supported general, this general was in an excellent position for victory, but he doesn't act according to his identity as a victorious general. He doesn't act according to his position sitting in victory. He didn't act according to his standing, well-supplied. And this failure to act, this Failure to function in his identity and function according to his position, it prolonged the death and misery of a horrible war. And I think President Lincoln, in that early part of July in 1863, experienced a bit of the grief that's similar to the sort of grief that Paul is warning about us potentially causing the Holy Spirit. And what Paul is saying is our pushing against the work of the Holy Spirit and not walking in our identity in Jesus grieves, brings grief to the Holy Spirit. That when we reject God's love and efforts to redeem his image in us, we cause God sorrow. In verse 30, he says, do not bring sorrow to God's Holy Spirit by the way that you live. See, Paul reminds us that the Spirit is an incredible gift of God. Like he says further, he goes, remember that he has identified you as his own guaranteeing that you'll be saved on the day of redemption, that the Holy Spirit is a gift that, that is our guarantee. It's a promise to us. It's an incredible gift of God himself. The Spirit is God's presence that benefits us in many ways. In John chapter 16, Jesus lays out a theology of the Holy Spirit that is uh, excellent for us to consider today. It's very approachable. Listen to what Jesus says in John 16, verse 7 says, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. Now, Jesus here is speaking to his disciples, and he's just alluded to the fact that he's no longer going to be with them. And his disciples, as you would imagine, are kind of freaking out, like, well, it's sort of all about you, so what do you mean you're not going to be here? And Jesus says, listen, it's actually better that I go. He says, for if I don't go away, the helper, which is the Holy Spirit, he won't come to you. But if I do go, I will send him to you, and he, when he comes... He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. See, the Holy Spirit, Jesus is saying, is the guide. The Holy Spirit is the the motivation, the power behind our new life in Jesus. And the Holy Spirit leads us in our new life together in unity as God's kingdom family as well. Now, the Holy Spirit works primarily in five ways uh, leading us in our new identity in Jesus. First of all, the Spirit convicts us, as we just read from John 16, that the Holy Spirit fuels our response to the gospel, allowing us to see our need for salvation. The second thing the Holy Spirit does is the Spirit seals our identity by sealing us in God's kingdom family, giving us confidence 
Uh, He's God's pledge, the Apostle Paul says. And so not only does he show us a tremendous need, he, he, he makes this pledge of us. The Holy Spirit also, the third thing he does is he convinces us of our need of salvation. And, and so he shows us our need, convinces us of the need, enables us to respond, makes a pledge that God is with us. And then the fourth thing, the Spirit communicates to us and shows us the will of God. Jesus says this, continuing in John 16, Verse 13 now, he says, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. Man, I need to be guided into all truth in this life. I remember in college when I started pushing away from the Lord, it's just impossible for me to discern truth. Things that sound so good ended up being so vacant and so blatantly false in my life. It wasn't until years later when God, by his grace, brought me back by the power of the Holy Spirit to actually see and behold what was true. I had to turn from so many things that I had taken as truth in my life. It is hard to discern what is true. Jesus promises that the Holy Spirit will lead you into all truth. He says he won't speak on his own, but he will tell you what he's heard. He will tell you about the future. What the Spirit does, he tells us the will of God. When we're at a situation like, what should I do, right or left, God will, by his Holy Spirit, lead us. He'll show, he'll reveal his plans. He'll reveal his intentions. He'll reveal his heart. He will show us Jesus and lead us into the future, leading us into what is true. And the last thing, the fifth thing that the Holy Spirit does is the Holy Spirit empowers us to walk in the promises of God. It powers us to walk in our new identity. The Holy Spirit is God's agent of gospel change in us, and the Holy Spirit is God's agent of gospel unity among us. It is all by the Spirit of God. And today, the Apostle Paul is exhorting us not to grieve God by rejecting this incredible gift of himself to us. Now, he's been leading us to exchange the old self for the new self in Jesus. This is a a common vocabulary in chapter 4. We've been talking and and looking and, and hearing from God about this a lot in these last several weeks. Off with the old, on with the new. And we've spent several weeks examining some of these new tendencies or these new characteristics, these things we now are led to do in our identity in Christ. New behaviors, new desires that we have in Jesus. And Paul's reminding us that these things happen by the power and presence and work of God's Holy Spirit. And that we grieve the Spirit. We bring sorrow to the Holy Spirit when we neglect or refuse this supernatural power, this supernatural presence, and this supernatural work of grace in our life. And that's, that's a powerful thing to sit on. Not, not because we should be ashamed of ourselves, because it's good to be reminded that God is working something supernatural in you, Christian. God is at work in your life right now. He has given you his spirit, and he is at work pushing you, leading you, revealing the future to you. He's at work doing this, and Paul is saying, when you resist that work, it grieves the heart of God. It, God is leading you on. He's saying, let God change you. Don't grieve God by resisting the good work that he's working out in you. And then Paul, as we will continue in our passage here, he shows us what it looks like. It shows us what it looks like when we allow the Holy Spirit to work this new identity in us. And there are things that we need to get rid of, as we'll see here. And there are things that we need to be. Things we need to get rid of and things that we need to be. Look at verse 31. Paul says, get rid of, and he starts with bitterness. 
Get rid of bitterness, rage, anger, harsh words, and slander, as well as all types of evil behavior. He says then in verse 32, instead, be. Now, these are the things that we are going to grow into. These are the things that we are going to become in Christ. He said, instead, be kind to each other, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. And so Paul lists this string of things that we're to get rid of, and he exhorts us to be. And these last few weeks, we've examined this behavioral change that Paul is talking about, and we've seen that it is impossible for us to make this change on our own. It's impossible for us to change our behavior in such a way that we please God apart from a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. We need God to make us good, is what Paul has been saying over and over again in Ephesians. This is why the work and the ministry and the gift of the Holy Spirit is so significant for us, because the Holy Spirit leads us in our new identity, empowering us to change. Jesus makes bad people good. He changes us. And the Holy Spirit shows us Jesus on a daily basis, leading us in this changed life. And once we're first made good by Jesus, we're then able to do good from our new good heart. Jesus makes us good. Now look at how John describes this new life here. The Apostle John in 1 John chapter 1 talking about the same thing, but taking a different perspective. He says in verse 5, this is the message we heard from Jesus and now declare to you. He says, God is light and there's no darkness in him at all. And so we're lying if we say that we have fellowship with him, but we go on living in spiritual darkness. We are not practicing the truth. See, John, what he's doing here is he's really just sharpening the pencil that Paul has been using to illustrate this new life in Jesus. He says that God is light And so that if we're living in darkness, we're obviously not living our life in God or for God or with God. And he says that we're lying to ourselves. We're deceiving ourselves if we claim to be in the light, but we're not. But we're we're living a a life in the darkness. It's a very rational argument that the Apostle John is making here. He's saying you're either in or you're out. And John uses this metaphor, this spiritual light and spiritual darkness as the determining factor. Now, what he's getting at here is kind of that analogy that I started with. General Meade, right? The the great Union general. The victorious general of Gettysburg, right? As he sat resting like an ordinary man. Sat resting after three days of battle like an ordinary tired man. Rather than pursuing his role as general. He was the general of an army that was at war. He had an enemy that was up against a river with numbers that had been decimated in the Battle of Gettysburg. And he spends nine days resting and recouping his troops rather than attacking. See, he's resting when he should have been using his position and and, and the, the advantage that he had, the strength that he had. He should have been doing what he was called to do rather than resting. A 30,000 troop army sitting waiting for orders, all the provisions that were streaming into little Gettysburg, Pennsylvania on trains, the cannon, the horses, all sitting around waiting for an order. See, this is the proposal that the Apostle John is challenging each of us to consider. He's saying, are you a child of God? And he asks that question by saying, are you living in the light? He says, some may claim to live in the light, but they're deceiving themselves if they're still in darkness. 
Now that's, that's heavy, okay? That, that is a, a heavy truth that John puts out for us to consider. But listen, please, he does not put that out there to condemn us or to shame us. John's not trying to say, hey, you need to change your behavior, right? You're disappointing God. Just, just change the way you are. That's, that's not the tone of this passage at all. John is trying to encourage us, just as the Apostle Paul has been trying to encourage us. See, Paul would say it this way. He would say, take off the dark old life and put on the new life which is in the light. See, that's what's at the heart of the passage today. Paul's exhortation is not just a list of things that we need to do. Paul's passage and his exhortation today reveals how these changes that he's been talking about, how they occur. This is a changed life And Paul is pointing very specifically, he's saying this is a changed life and it happens from the inside out. And look at how he does it. It's so creative. Verse 31, Ephesians 4, 31. He says, get rid of all bitterness. Starting with bitterness, that's important. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, harsh words, and slander, as well as all types of evil behavior. Notice that it starts in bitterness. Bitterness is something that is inside of our heart. It is a posture of the heart. It's not a behavior. Bitterness is is the result of allowing anger a place, a foothold to be established within us. And it all starts from bitterness and then the rest of his list, rage, anger, and then finally harsh words coming out of our mouth and slander, intentional harsh words to tear people down, and then evil behavior. He's saying that the the, the bitter heart leads to all sorts of evil and wickedness which, which grieves the heart of God. Bitterness is not a behavior It's a posture of the heart toward others. And bitterness or or resentment, it sets in when anger is welcomed or allowed to stay. And bitterness poisons a person's heart. The great African theologian Augustine said this. He said that harboring resentment is like taking poison and hoping that the other person dies. Right? It's a self-inflicted poison. Bitterness is a self-inflicted poison. Resentment, it's a self-inflicted poison. And it affects our ability to, to regulate our anger and to regulate our words and to take our thoughts and our actions captive. And Paul explains that the outward effect, the explosive outward effect of a bitter heart produces this. Bitterness, rage, anger, harsh words, slander, all sorts of evil. A heart of bitterness, Paul is saying, fosters an attitude of rage rather than righteousness. And rage prevents us from being able to take our offense and our disappointment with others captive. And so we just live our lives as a bitter, offended person. Always just offended at people and sensitive to to what people say and how people are, what light they're casting us in. And we have to share our disappointment with other people. We're disappointed with the people around us because we're not guarding our heart. The bitter heart leads to this this heart of of rage and things just come out of us is what rage means. It's It's an anger that we can't grab a hold of. There's no handles for it because it comes from bitterness. And Paul is saying, don't deal with the rage, deal with the bitterness. Deal with the heart. He's talking about harsh words. And sometimes the words we choose are harsh. Maybe we say something that has an element of truth, but we exaggerate. We're not handling the truth properly. But we say it because it's harsh and it'll have a sting. Or sometimes a harsh word, it could be interpreted, is a word that's harshly spoken, our tone of voice. It's like when I come into the living room and I've got kids yelling at each other, right? And I walk in all calm and peaceful and I'm like, you know, guys, we really need to just work this out, right? Right? That's not how I come in. I come in and they're yelling and what do I do? 
I yell a little bit louder than they do, and I tell them to stop it. You're being rude to each other, right? I, I, there's this perfect illustration from my childhood I was able to find today that I'm going to show you. Calvin here on the far left panel, middle of the night, right? He wakes up. And he's like, Mom. She's like, what's the matter? He's like, do ugly things like octopuses and hairy bugs reproduce? Are they actually attracted to each other? And mom's like, it's 3 a.m., go to sleep. She walks out and he's stunned. He's like, wow, come to think of it, I wonder how people are attracted to each other. <laughs> and Hobbes is like, I'll bet that's why they close their eyes when they smooch. <laughs> I love that. Unbecoming, right? That's a harshly spoken word. That's a, that's a tone right there. It's all truth, right? It was 3 a.m. Go to sleep. Good advice. But it's a harshly word. It is a harshly spoken word. Last week in our passage, um, I, I didn't have time to cover this one little element of the verse, so I'm going to read it right now. In Ephesians 4.29, Paul says, Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification. And here's what we should look at today. According to the need of the moment. Okay, what Paul's talking about is the timing of our words. You might have truth, and it might be delivered in a kind tone, but the timing of it can make it harsh. Okay, another Calvin and Hobbes comic. Look at this. <laughs> Calvin comes up to his dad. What you doing, dad? I'm busy trying to fix something. Okay, here comes the untimely truth. He's speaking the truth. He's, he's doing it in a calm way. He's like, he observes this. Why bother? On the rare occasion when you know what the problem is, you usually make it worse and hurt yourself in the process. Right? Fair enough. But then he's running with tools flying after him. And he says, I wish I noticed the bandage on his hand before I said that. <laughs> his dad had already hurt himself. See, a bitter heart undermines the work of grace that God is doing in us. And a bitter heart undermines the work of grace that God is doing through us in the lives of people around us. And I've had to put a real fine point on what bitter language is, and I, I broke it down in those three areas, not, not because I think you guys are thick and you don't get it. You might really get that. I have a heart. To, I need to, because I don't say mean things all the time, and I often am self-disciplined and self-righteous enough to not even say them in a mean way. But man, my timing can really zing people, right? Bitter words, harsh words. The Holy Spirit is leading us into every moment of every day and the timing of our speech, the delivery of our speech, the words that we choose when we speak. See, this is why Paul is saying, it all comes from bitterness. Get rid of it. Bitterness produces this rage that we can't grab a hold of and then words come out. The wrong words in the wrong way at the wrong time. And look at verse 31. Paul says, get rid of it. All bitterness, rage, anger, harsh words, and slander, as well as all types of evil behavior. He's, he's saying, man, there's, there's a whole host of things that go along that are in cahoots with our bitter heart. And he's saying, these are the things that grieve the spirit. But what happens is too often we read verses like this and we go, well, this is all about bad behavior. I need to change my behavior. Or we, we try to change the behavior of other people. But our external behavior is rooted in our heart. That's what the Apostle Paul is getting at in this passage. A bitter heart yields a bad attitude. A bitter heart yields bad words. A bitter heart yields bad behavior, he's saying. 
Jesus says in Luke 6 that good words come from a good heart. And as we've seen in Ephesians so far, only Jesus can make our heart good. And so Paul pleads with us to let the Spirit produce the good fruit that comes from the good heart that Jesus has given us. And so verse 31 in our text today shows us the source of the problem, right? Our heart is the problem. Verse 31 shows us the source. Verse 32 shows us the source of the solution. We go verse 32. Paul says, instead, be kind to each other, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God through Christ has forgiven you. And Paul, what he's doing is he's laying out the pattern for healing our hearts. He's saying you've got bitterness in your heart. It's in the hidden corners and the hidden crevices, and you can't just pull bitterness out. And so he's, he's laying out this theology, this practical theology for us to consider today. And it, this, patterned, this patterned theology that he lays out has forgiveness as a centerpiece of it. Because our bitterness in our heart usually happens as a result of an offense or a hurt or something in the past that we hold on to and we bury and we allow it to sit down in there. These last several weeks have been very convicting as you might be able to tell. It's been very personally convicting for me. I've had to examine my heart in the way that I sometimes mishandle the truth. And then I have to come up and talk to you guys about it. It's crazy. I've had to come to terms with the reasons why I sometimes let anger control me. That's a real issue in my heart. I've had to be convicted of my harsh words and my tendency to tear others down. I've been convicted of, of the sarcasm I use. Right, the, the clever ways I try to just be clever, but there's always a little zing. There's always a little knocking of someone in, in most of the sarcasm that helps us feel good and clever and funny and witty, right? I've been convicted of that. I've had to face the fact that all too often I am not a huge encouragement to those around me. It's been heavy. But while we've all experienced conviction these last several weeks, the Apostle Paul has been very clear to remind us of God's forgiveness and the new life we have in Jesus. We're not left in condemnation. We're not left in the old identity, which blows it over and over again. We have been given forgiveness and a new life in Jesus, he says. There's forgiveness for you, Christian, in Jesus today. Don't think of yourself as stuck in an old pattern that comes from a bitter heart because Jesus wants to give you a new heart by the power of the Holy Spirit today. There's hope for you in Jesus. And Paul has exposed our need for grace and he leads us to the unmeasurable grace of God. In the end of our verse, verse 32, we see this beautiful phrase that God has forgiven us where it says, just as God through Christ has forgiven you, has forgiven you. It's a, a past tense. See, if you're in Christ, if you're a Christian, there's immediate forgiveness for you in Jesus. God has looked at your record of sin and he has looked at Jesus's record of righteousness and Jesus has stepped in and taken your place. And so when God looks for a record of sin for you, it's no longer on your record because Jesus took all of that record upon himself. God has offered you forgiveness. You're in a good standing with God. God offers forgiveness in Jesus. And that doesn't mean that he just sweeps it under the rug, right? Like a benevolent grandfather, just kind of like, oh, you're just a boy being a boy. Don't worry about it, right? You'll grow up and not be rude anymore. Really? I'm 47 years old and I'm rude, okay? That doesn't happen on its own. I need to be changed. See, that God's forgiveness doesn't just neglect the change that's required. 
God's forgiveness means that he takes the full penalty for our bad behavior. He suffers the full penalty that we deserve out of his love for us. Jesus says there's a deep need for forgiveness. In order to restore the love of God for his creation, in order to restore the fellowship of God with his creation, in order to restore the role of, of stewardship and father, the familial nature in which we were created by God, in the image of God, to live like life with God, and to join God in the work that he is at work doing in the world around us, it requires required someone to stand in and say, I will bear the full burden. I will pay the full price for your sin. Jesus raised his hand and he steps up and he offers a full pardon by dying on the cross for us. Christian, it is good for us to remember the power of the gospel, the depth of the forgiveness that God has offered us in Jesus. But our passage doesn't just stop with God's forgiveness of us. Right, his crazy forgiveness. He also says, that forgiveness that I've given you, that is the standard for the forgiveness that you are to have with one another. This is gnarly. Let's read verse 32 in light of that. He says, instead, be kind to each other, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. Okay, now I'm thinking, right, the self-righteous me is like, I can kind of pull that off. I can pull that off. Usually around other people I can pull that off, right? There's a comma there, and he says, just as God through Christ has forgiven you. Forgiving people who have wronged us. Forgiving people who don't acknowledge their wrongdoing. Forgiving unforgivable people, undeserving people, unsavory people. How the heck do I pull that off? And here's what Paul is saying. He's saying that we're able to forgive others to the degree that we know that we are forgiven by Jesus. Christian, this is why we rehearse and rejoice in the gospel. This is why the glory of God needs to be at the forefront of your mind. This is why your heart needs to cry out in worship to God before your feet hit the floor in the morning. Because in order to forgive others, We need to rejoice in the forgiveness that God has extended to us. We can't change our ability to forgive others without God's help. We can't change our behavior without God's work in us. Apart from the work of the Spirit, bad behavior is either going to run rampant in my life or I'm going to suffer under legalistic self-righteousness in my life. That's where the Lord found me several years ago. After I'd walked away from the Lord... I would try really hard, living under legalistic self-righteousness, comparing myself to other people. Or I would just say, you know what, forget that, and I would just dive right back into my lifestyle of sin. I was caught between two worlds, and both of them was a a losing bet. See, Jesus does this work for us, and he does it by changing us, and he changes us by putting his Holy Spirit in us to walk with us and lead us and empower us in what is true and right. Jesus gives us a heart to forgive others who don't deserve forgiveness. See, that requires supernatural grace and power. It requires a changed heart. Remember, that is what the Holy Spirit does in us. God's forgiveness and his gift of the Spirit are both the pattern and the power of our new identity. Paul says that the Spirit is is God's guarantee, God's reminder, the guarantee of our position in Christ. He's working in us to show us Jesus. He's leading us 
changing us to be like Jesus. That is what the Holy Spirit is doing in our life right now. And we have patterns of hard-heartedness and patterns of behavior that betray the Spirit's work in us. We grieve and bring sorrow to the Spirit. If you can only remember one thing from the sermon this morning, remember this in verse 30. And Paul even tells you to remember it, so. Verse 30, he says, remember, he has identified you as his own. See, in Jesus, you are claimed by God as his own possession. And he's put his Holy Spirit in you to seal the deal. You're in an excellent position, just like a victorious general after a big, winning a big battle with fresh troops and fresh supplies. You are in an excellent position, Christian. You are victorious in Jesus. You are well-supplied, well-supported, well-equipped. You are forgiven and loved and empowered. This is what it means for us, that we are God's own possession. We're brought from a place of grieving God, from a lifestyle of grief, into a lifestyle of glorifying God, from grief to glory, enjoying the glory of God. Christian, let the Holy Spirit work in your heart today. And the first thing that Jesus said that the Spirit does is he convicts the world. And man, I need to be convicted because there are places in my heart where the bitterness hides that I don't like to look or I'm not able to look for whatever reason, and I need to ask God open-handed and say, God, do this work, search my heart, convict me. And then we confess, we release, we expose the things that the Holy Spirit shows us. In Psalm 51, David is convicted by the Holy Spirit. And, and he's, he's responding to God, right, as he's writing the Psalm, and he says that you have set my sin before me, I look upon it day and night. Right, it's a, that's where we get the word besetting sin, right? You've set my sin before me. That comes from Psalm 51. Ask God to set your sin before you. Because in my pride on my own, I don't always see my sin, especially the hidden sin. Especially the sin and the bitterness or, or the resentment or the hurt or the wounds that I hold on to, which is the breeding ground for rage, which is the breeding ground for harsh words and language. Put on Jesus this morning. Adorn your new identity in Christ. You've been given a new, changed identity. Christian, put him on. And so we're going to respond in worship. And I want to encourage you to sit in the love of God. Sit in awe of the forgiveness of God and the joy of God to step out of heaven and stand between you and me in our sin, separating us from our sin. Stand in awe of a God that loves us enough to do that. Ask the Lord today for a heart of forgiveness. As God has forgiven you, ask God to give you a heart of forgiveness for others, to do that work of rooting out the bitterness, rooting out the hidden places in our heart. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and I thank you, God, for the good work the good work that you are doing this morning. We ask you now, Spirit, to, to do that good work in our heart. God, to examine and search our hearts. Lord, make us willing. Make us willing to see and respond to your conviction. Make us willing, God, to confess to you, to cry out to you. Help us, God, respond to the work of your Holy Spirit this morning. 
God, we want to experience your love and your mercy and your grace. So God, we pray that you would expose and deal with the things that separate us from you in our heart. Do that hard work this morning, God. We submit ourselves to you. We give you all honor, glory, and praise. Come, Holy Spirit. We invite you now, God, to work in our hearts, applying your word to your sons and daughters. In Jesus' name, amen.